from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. From snow sweeping across the country this week to now record-breaking cold. Boy, it's going to be nasty. If you are out in the northwestern plains, it is going to be unbearable. From winter wheat to livestock, we'll tell you what's most at risk. Even with the drought, did the U.S. produce a record corn crop last year? USDA's final production numbers are out for 2023. Headwinds overseas. One in five dollars in their farm income comes from export markets. And as we look at this global economy, we're in a global economic slowdown. And the impact here at home. Plus, a family's tractor collection connecting all of us to the past and helping this family cherish the good old days gone by. Those were the best days of our lives. U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when experience meets expertise. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Now for the news happening right now. It's another weekend of keeping a watch on the weather as another winter storm pushes across the U.S. along with strong winds followed by bitter cold temperatures. It follows a week where weather continued to make headlines in farm country. The storm this week impacting cattle operations and disrupting beef processing schedules. The massive storm dumping more snow than forecast with over 20 inches in the heaviest areas. The bullseye was in Nebraska and Kansas and it impacted beef processors with only 115,000 head of cattle slaughtered on Monday according to USDA. The weather also impacting average daily gains due to the cold and muddy feedlot conditions. Analysts say this will reverse the trend of record cattle carcass weights the last several weeks, which were tied to the dry and mild fall and early winter weather. So now these cattle go from go from growing four pounds a day to all of a sudden, wham, stand still, lose weight. Now you're going to feed them for two or three weeks to try to get their weight back to where it was before that. So you're going to see a big drop in, in, in performance and, and, and in the weight of the cattle, in my opinion. Coima says weights were expected to drop again with another winter storm that hit the southwest later in the week. The Minnesota Attorney General is accusing a dairy in the state of wage theft. Attorney General Keith Ellison accusing Evergreen Acres Dairy of at least $3 million in wage theft and also of providing substandard housing to Evergreen employees. The Attorney General's office supplying these pictures. The office claims some workers live in windowless bedrooms with plywood walls, unfinished electric sockets, and only space heaters for warmth. A complaint filed against the dairy says many employed or unauthorized workers largely from a region of Mexico that does not speak Spanish. It claims Evergreen Acres has used the vulnerabilities of the unauthorized workforce to hold large sums of earned wages from its employees. It also claims Evergreen Acres didn't keep employment records required by law, destroyed time cards, and falsified records. Evergreen Acres runs 18 facilities across central Minnesota. So far, there has not been a statement released from the owners of Evergreen Acres. Nebraska state regulators say JBS is responsible for sending a so-called sludge blanket into two rivers. The Nebraska Department of Environment and Energy says an anaerobic wastewater lagoon was breached over the weekend in Grand Island. It estimates 4 million gallons of wastewater discharged from the lagoon and went into a ditch that leads into the Wood River. It then traveled into the Platte River about 15 miles from the JBS plant. 
It reports JBS contracted a cleanup company to vacuum up the spill. JBS says it took immediate action to reduce any impacts and is working with state and federal officials to handle the cleanup. It says the release has been stopped and the plant is back to operating normally. USDA says foreign-owned farmland in the U.S. grew by more than 8% in 2022. The number owned by foreign entities totals 43.4 million acres of forest and farmland. However, that's just 3.4% of total U.S. ag land. On this map, the states in orange are where foreign-held ag land is 2.4% or more. Canada, they remain the largest foreign investor of U.S. land, accounting for 32% of total foreign-held land. China, they only account for less than 1%. That's it for the news. Well, from snow last week to now talking record-breaking cold in the plains in Northwest, we'll have a check of your weather next. And I'm warning you, it's not pretty. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. Polysides, floor, and a rear monoblock gearbox on vertical beater models are just some of the great features of the H&S Hydra Push 425 and 550 bushel model manure spreaders. Find out more about the Hydra Push at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht. Matt, you warned us last week it was set to get cold. It is just brutal in parts of the country right now. How long is this Arctic air going to last? Yeah, Ty, I appreciate uh, the point about uh, knowing about this uh, weeks in advance with that cold air. Now, your other question, uh, a little bit harder to, of course, answers. How long is this going to be around? Well, I got the temperature outlook January 16th uh, through the 20th. And again, uh, easy to discern uh, that we're going to have below average temperatures across two thirds of the United States. Now, this is very similar to what we went through in the summer. It's just on the other side of the spectrum and that uh, this cold air is being reinforced by the jet stream. It's not one of those one and done type situations. Uh, cold air is going to be sticking around so long as that coldest air is up here to our north. We start to move things around a little bit towards the tail end of January and by February, uh, things seem to look like they're going to moderate a little bit. Already starting to see that a little bit uh, by January 20th out on the west coast with uh, above average normal temperatures uh, with uh, some ridging in place. So just kind of put some graphics on it regarding that jet stream. Uh, all talk uh, this entire weekend and for this next week is going to be on the brutally cold temperatures. Now one thing you're going to hear something a little bit about on Monday and even a little bit into Tuesday is that while this cold is here, it's also stretching down here into the south. So anytime we get little pieces of energy working through the atmosphere, nothing big like that low pressure system we had this past weekend, but a little something to kick up uh, some moisture may come down as snow and not a real great amount of snowfall, but anytime you're talking snow in Oklahoma or Texas, uh, it is worth noting uh, even into Missouri. So that's going to be for our Monday by Tuesday and Wednesday. That little piece of energy moves away. What doesn't move is Grimace, uh, the purple that stays up to our north and the cold air just continues to rotate from the, uh, the northwest, the top left corner of your screen down to the southeast or the bottom right. And that's why this isn't a one and done type cold trend. This is five, six, seven days of cold air sticking around the United States. So again, there's a jet stream on Wednesday. We take this into Thursday. What we want to see is back here, if you like warmer temperatures and not the bitterly cold ones, the ridging off here to the west is what's going to usher or kick and squeeze this trough to the northeast. But it is going to take some time. This is a very heavy and dominant air mass being cold and being dry. So to answer your question time, which 
we're going on 14, 15, 16 minutes now. Um, it is going to be around for a little bit longer, at least another week with those colder temperatures. Estimated rainfall in the next seven days. Go ahead and assume that uh, some of that is going to be snow into Texas, Louisiana, and even into Arkansas. Well, did USDA cut its estimate for South American production yet? Plus, just how big of a crop did U.S. farmers produce last year? USDA out with its final crop production report of the year. We'll have the details next in our marketing roundtables. Welcome back. Arlen Suderman and Jim McCormick joining us for markets. Well, the big news, USDA's reports out on Friday. USDA raising the national corn yield to 177.3 bushels per acre in the January report. That's a new national record yield, but that's also a big jump from November when USDA had the national yield penciled in at 174.9 bushels per acre. Now, USDA did cut harvested acreage, but we're still looking at 2023 corn production figure of 15.34 billion bushels. Before we get into soybeans, Arlen, that is a massive jump from this November report and, and more than what the trade expected. Yeah, it really is. And um, we got a lot of criticism for our estimate all summer long being too high, and we were ended up too low. This crop just really impressed, not just the genetics of it, but farmers uh, with their technology, the seed placement, just the management of it are getting better and better at uh, withstanding these stresses. And it just makes you wonder how good this crop might have been had we not had the stresses we had. Absolutely. And Jim, looking at the demand front, did USDA make any major revisions to corn demand? Well, they did increase the ethanol. You know, they did do a few uh, slight of revisions up time, and I think that was pretty much in line. And I guess it's a good thing to that they did because without those upward revisions of demand, this carryout would have really exploded to the upside. And uh, I think the market would even have even worse negative reaction than it's currently having. Absolutely. But USDA also increasing the national soybean yield to 50.6 bushels per acre. That's up from the 49.9 in November. Soybean production now pegged at 4.16 billion bushels. I mean, you look at even the, the, the resilience of the soybean crop this year, Arlen. What is the biggest takeaway for soybeans from this week's report? Yeah, the same genetics we plant here, we plant in South America as well, essentially so. And so we need to look at South America in that same light. This crop really did well, especially in the eastern Midwest. Uh, we saw some really good yields from corn and soybeans this year. And some of that may have been some of the benefits from the smoke coming from the Canadian fires. That's one of the theories now with sulfur and some other uh, uh, positive effects coming from that smoke. Yeah, and Jim, when you look at South America, like Arlen mentioned, USDA did revise its estimate there, cutting soybeans to 157 million metric tons. That's down from 161. Also cutting the Brazilian corn estimate by 2 million metric tons. I mean, those were those in line with expectations or did we think that we were going to see bigger cuts from USDA in this report? Trade is looking for bigger cuts tying the rhetoric, I think, was even for bigger cuts than what the average trade guess was. So, yeah, it was definitely a little bit disappointing, but we've got, you know, time will tell where we're at. I mean, some of the modeling I've seen for the weather is we are going to turn a little bit warmer, drier here in the middle part of January. And with as late as this bean crop has been planted, that could cause some problems to that crop and still shrink it. And of course, we still even started planting that safrina corn crop. So the size of that crop is yet to be determined. Okay, we're getting early yield reports from Brazil. Arlen, what are you hearing? Well, the first soybeans are lower yields, as we would expect, because those are the stressed soybeans. Those are the early planted that went through the most stress. So those are lower, and then we anticipate those yields are going to start coming back up. We still do expect the production estimates to continue to decline as we go forward in South America. The biggest question is, will it decline enough 
to justify rationing U.S. demand with higher prices. In other words, to send the world back here for our tighter supplies. And at this point, we don't have evidence that it's going to fall to that level yet. Jim, the markets didn't, I mean, trade did not like this report. We're seeing some lower commodity prices. Did the markets react like you would expect it to, considering these changes from USDA? Well, I, I think a lot of the trade time was looking, hoping for maybe a little bit of a slightly bearish reaction and then kind of a rebound at it. Uh, this report, in my opinion, was definitely kind of shocked people, especially on that yield. I, I think the trade in general was really kind of bracing. Think the rhetoric was the crop is going to get a little bit smaller. And I, you know, we've got to digest this kind of report. But, you know, it is a three-day weekend. You know, hopefully that once we come out of this weekend, the market will kind of take a breather and try to come back up a little bit. But right now, you know, it's a typical USDA report. They threw a lot of numbers at us. They were bearish. The QB readers are running with it. And right now they're running to the downside. Well, we haven't even gotten through all of the numbers from USDA. We'll look at wheat and then look at this cold weather impact on cattle. We'll do that when we come back. Welcome back. Arlen Suderman and Jim McCormick joining us for our Marketing Roundtables this weekend. Arlen, USDA making some adjustments to its forecast of wheat seedings this year. We expected to see lower wheat seedings, but was it more than what the trade even anticipated heading into this report? Yeah, it was about a million acres less than what the trade was anticipating for hard red winter wheat. And total wheat was about a million point three. Uh, million acres. So some big drops in acreage. If you really look at where we saw, we saw some increases right in the center of the Midwest, Missouri into Illinois, but almost everyone else saw big decreases in winter wheat acreage. Wheat just really struggling. And we see this trend continuing for spring wheat as well, particularly with some new crushing facilities being built up in the Northwestern Midwest that'll favor more soybeans in that area. Now, even as we look at these lower wheat numbers, Jim, is there anything to get this wheat market excited at this point? Well, I think you get one, you got to look at the weather, Dine. Um, you know, where I'm at here in Chicago, we're getting a pretty big major snowstorm right now, but it's going to be followed up with a lot of uh, extreme cold temperatures pretty much across the, the country. And not everyone's catching the snow like we are. The further south you go, they're not getting much snow, so you could get people talking about winter kill. Then the other thing going on is, the Middle East is still very, very up in the air. It seems to be getting worse, not better. So you never know when the market could put a little bit of fear back into the market. You know, essentially fear pricing due to uncertainty of getting grain out of the Ukraine. It could come in at any time. Yeah, when you're look, talking about this cold weather, speaking of the impacts on cattle, we saw the cattle markets respond a little bit. I mean, we are looking at just some brutally cold temperatures, especially in the Northern Plains, Arlen. How do you think that this could impact weights in the coming weeks? Yeah, we're taking a lot of weight off, unfortunately for the feeders, but it does help solve a problem. Our biggest problem has been an excess of meat on the market, and we've really seen up some of the data that came out this week as we've been rationing export demand uh, for beef in particular. Pork demand's been pretty good, and so we've had this excess beef and pork on the market, and then we hit this winter storm. We hurt performance of the animals. We shut down processing plants. And this is just storm after storm. So we are taking meat off the market, and therefore the product market is rebounding. That's helping to firm the cash market as well. And that's helping solve a little bit of our surplus meat problem on the market right now. Jim, when we talk about livestock and also grains, I mean, we know that geopolitical issues around the globe can change the markets in a hurry. There's a lot that we're watching, whether it be the issues in the Red Sea, some other things geopolitically. What are you most concerned about at this point? Right now, I think right now, the Red Sea, obviously, trying to get product moved around there. 
is definitely a forefront because of what we did last night, essentially bombing back uh, at Yemen terrorists. The other thing we need to kind of keep an eye on time that's going to move to the forefront is you do have this tight number one these election coming up. We'll see how the Chinese react to it. Uh, you know, they're not exactly playing nice with each other right now. And that just is not what the world needs is to ratchet up tensions in another portion of the world. But that could easily happen. And, you know, the markets don't like uncertainty, so that could have a bearish reaction to the market. There are some risks. But when you look at some of the challenges in the Red Sea, could this actually position the U.S.? well when it comes to corn exports or, or, or soybean exports for some of these areas? It could, but I mean, the other problem we've got, Tyne, is the what's going on in the Panama Canal. That water level continues to be low, you know, so you try to ship some stuff essentially off the West Coast. There is a logistics issue of how much supply they can get pushed out of those ports. And now you got all these winter storms coming in on top of it. So uh, logistics could probably be an issue. But the reality is hopefully we got a good break in pricing. Uh, dollar's been weakening a little bit in general that now will be the time that we see a step up in demand from foreign countries. And that's really what I think we need to see to bottom this grain market out is demand to step in. Yeah. Arlen, what do you think is the biggest opportunity for exports at this point? Well, certainly, as we look at Taiwan, that would be a negative toward exports. But I think the Black Sea and the Red Sea risks certainly are supportive overall. Let's keep in mind that China has been pulling a lot of corn out of the Black Sea, out of Ukraine that goes through the Red Sea. And so if that kind of gets shut down, then that has China looking for other sources of corn. They've been pulling from Brazil, uh, but Brazil's going to be shifting their focus now to shipping soybeans. So the next several months should give us an improved opportunity to ship corn. All right. We thank you both for joining us. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be back with more U.S. Farm Report. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. We are headed back to Ohio this week to check out a pair of John Deere D's owned by a husband and wife. My D was bought in about 2001 and it's received full sheet metal, been torn apart, put back together. We got her D. Um, 20, 2020. 2020 and it is as found. Back when I was a little girl, a good friend of ours named Harvey Klotz had a, has, well, it's still in the family, a spoker D. And my dad had had the chance to buy it. And of course, my mom smacked his fingers and said, you can't have that. So Harvey bought it and restored it. And um, I can remember going over to Harvey's house as a little girl. And he said, oh, Emily, you need to get up on that seat. And it's like, oh, Harvey, you know, that's too big of a tractor. And he just picked me up one day and flopped me down on the seat. And that was like looking out over a football field. And that's all it took. That's called Nellie Bell because when I sent her a text that I bought it and I told her it's only 700 numbers apart from my D and we ought to buy this. And she says, well, if you have two of the same tractor, that's my tractor. I said, but I get to name it. My tractor was stripped down, head, head was off, block was cleaned out and it had a lot of rust in it. Um, carburetor, mag work, you know, just the normal stuff, get it run, changing oil. And her, and her tractor, we just put the belt on it and got it spinning and got it running. The one on my left here, my tractor sits up on Coke bottles and at the end of the show, we just kind of push it off. So the D's here, you know, pretty much put John Deere on the map. They were built 30 years, 23 to 53. And by the time these were built, they were to the largest cubic inch two-cylinder deer made at 501. They have a sound all to their own. There's no other two-cylinder sounds quite like a D does. They're extremely over-engineered in the middle, um, and they will take a lot of abuse. D's put John Deere on the map in the tractor world. This is their first design. Well, actually, Waterwood Boy designed this tractor, but Deere put it in production, and this got Deere into the tractors. 
Uh, I love them and yeah, that, that's probably my favorite, all-time favorite tractor is a D. Still to come, in times of chaos, you rely on experience. And that's exactly what we're doing in Chip's Corner this week to cut through the chaos in Washington and weigh a possible government shutdown. But first, a slowdown in the global economy. What could it mean for farmers here at home? Michelle Rook joins us next. Bank is projecting the global economy will expand just 2.4% this year. That's down from the 2.6% in 2023. The slowdown is due in part to higher interest rates in an effort to curb inflation. Michelle Rook talked to leading economists at the Water Street Solutions Edge Conference in Tucson, Arizona, about how this will impact agriculture in 2024. Michelle? Speakers here say they expect inflation to return in 2024, and that will not only impact the interest rate climate, but the willingness of the funder speculative community to buy agricultural commodities. Now that could actually be good news for the grain markets. Inflation cooled in 2023 to a low of 3.1% for November following hikes by the Fed that put interest rates at a 22-year high of 5.25 to 5.5%. However, the December Consumer Price Index showed inflation rose to 3.4%. In Arlen Suderman with Stonex says there are other signs inflation is returning. With the economy kind of getting its footing underneath again, that's just going to encourage more buying of goods and services, which tends to inflate wages again as well, and the other is shelter. So despite the market's pricing and lower interest rates, he doesn't expect the Fed to make that move, at least in early 2024. I believe it means higher for longer from the Federal Reserve, but I believe the Federal Reserve starts to lose its influence on interest rates this year, uh, particularly the longer end of the yield curve, as we see what's projected to be a 23% increase in debt certificates that are offered onto the Treasury market because of government spending. That means the Fed won't be able to raise interest rates to effectively curb inflation. Plus, ag economist Dr. David Cole says the Fed doesn't want a repeat of the 1980s, so he thinks the market is getting ahead of itself. They don't realize that the Fed was late to tackle inflation. They don't want to, you know, uh, uh, do a strategy to bring it back, and so they're going. The Federal Reserve is going to be very, very cautious. This setup could cause the funds to buy commodities as a hedge against inflation. After being in a deflation mode for the past 21 months and short in many markets like corn and wheat. Well, they have a tendency, once they come out of something, they go the other way. I think we could have a catalyst that gets them flat, and then we'd see if they, there's something optimistic enough to get them long. Um, but we might find out that we have another surge in inflation, and that would be bullish to commodities if that happened. We've seen a, a, a strong correlation. Um, in price action of money coming into the commodities, which tends to affect prices in years when the managed money is worried about rising inflation. And that fund buying could support grain prices later in the year, which would be welcome news for farmers. We've been at a bear market here for about a year and a half, so we need some sort of spark to get the grain markets to, to move higher. And, and hopefully that inflation part of it can do that. That doesn't necessarily mean we get a big rally in prices, but it does make it easier for the market to respond 
to any type of a friendly story that comes along. Cole says the headwind for those grain rallies may be global demand. China's growth rate was 5.2% in 2023, which cut U.S. exports by 40%. The World Bank projects China's growth at 4.5% this year, the slowest in 30 years. One in five dollars in net farm income comes from export markets. And as we look at this global economy, we're in a global economic slowdown. Number one, China. Uh, because of its demographic issues and also because of the exports being down in China, not only around the world, but the United States and Europe, along with uh, the European economy uh, kind of being in recessional times. At the same time, South America's ag production is expanding. So Cole says the U.S. is becoming a secondary provider. Those export customers are also going away from the U.S. dollar and creating their own currency. In other words, uh, Asia and China, are they're going to go to the southern hemisphere, whether it's Brazil, New Zealand, Australia, etc. They'll go there first. Now, if uh, they can't supply them, then they come to the United States. As a result, he says farmers will see tighter margins and need to globalize and future-proof their operations. You keep your business very financially liquid with working capital keep your cash, keeps your options open. Farmers attending the conference say they're taking all this advice to heart and integrating it into their marketing and financial plans for 2024. The last couple years, you know, from a profitability standpoint, it's been relatively easy just because whatever price the grain price was at was a profit, where this year it's going to be a situation where, um, you know, if you see profit, you better grab it. I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle. Well, inflation is skyrocketing in Argentina, plus why German farmers are protesting the government. We have all of those stories and more in Ag Around the World next. You're watching U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Now a look at agriculture around the world. German farmers are protesting the government and it's resulting in tractors blocking roads and highways. Protests like this happening all across Germany this week. The protests stem from the government's plans to phase out subsidies. One is a tax break on agricultural diesel with a plan to eliminate it by 2026. Reuters reporting one farmer claims the removal of the tax break would cause his farm to lose about 10,000 euros. The farmer calling it catastrophic to their farms. Meanwhile, Polish farmers that were blocking a border crossing with Ukraine are ending their protest. This comes from Poland's state news agency. The report says farmers have reached an agreement with the government over impacts of Ukraine ag products coming across the border. You can see the signing of that agreement here. The deal includes corn production subsidy as well as lower agricultural taxes. Tensions in the Red Sea are growing and it's causing shipping rates to skyrocket. U.S. and British naval forces fought off attacks by Yemen-based militants. Forces shot down 21 drones and missiles fired by those militants on Tuesday, marking the largest attack since the war between Hamas and Israel started three months ago. The U.S. Central Command reports there have been 25 attacks against merchant ships in the southern Red Sea since mid-November. And China is cracking down on corruption within agriculture. Officials say it has far-reaching significance to ensure China's food security. 
According to the South China Morning Post, which is a state media source, the corruption crackdown is occurring in a key northern province. According to the report, more than 1,000 cases of corruption have been filed and 1,300 officials in the province were disciplined as of late last year. It's over abuses in grain purchases and sales. Officials say the investigations have been ongoing for more than two years, offering rewards for whistleblowers who exposed corruption in the grain sector. China announcing it will sell pork from state reserves. In total, officials plan to sell 30,000 metric tons. This comes after the country made several purchases of pork last year in an effort to support waning domestic hog prices. China is the top global importer of pork. And the Philippines is extending its reduced pork tariff, which bodes well for U.S. exports. The measures were put into place in 2021 after the country faced a shortage of pork due to an outbreak of African swine fever. U.S. pork exports then hit a record in 2021. The Philippines is a big Asian market with more than 109 million people who prefer pork. India's ag exports are set to rise this year. That's despite restrictions on exports of wheat, rice, and sugar. The trade minister said this week that exports of meat, dairy, cereals, fruits, and vegetables all rose between April and November and expects it to continue. And if you are concerned about rising costs and inflation here in the U.S. in 2023, well, the, that figure pales in comparison to what's happening in Argentina. Inflation hitting the highest level since early 1990. It's estimated Buenos Aires inflation was up 198% in 2023. Some products saw increases of more than 700%. Inflation was already on the rise, but after the new president devalued the country's currency late last month, it's estimated inflation soared another 28%. Argentina ranks third in the world for soybean production. Well, here at home, with the U.S. government shutdown still on the line, what will it take to keep the government open? We hear from former House Ag Committee Chair Colin Peterson in Chip's Corner next. Welcome back. Chip's Corner, dishing out the good stuff. Chip, what good stuff did you find out on AgriTalk this week? Well, a lot of the good stuff that we got this week was really kind of some bad news for the government as we look forward to those deadlines on getting the appropriations bills done by January 19th and, and by February 2nd to avoid at least a partial shutdown. We're looking at some really tough situations. We had a conversation, relied on experience, and went to Colin Peterson, former chairman of the House Ag Committee and Democrat from Minnesota, to find out exactly where things stand at this time. They're still hoping that they can move these appropriation bills one by one. They're hoping that they can make uh, amendments to them and get them passed through the House and the Senate and signed and so forth. I don't see how that's gonna happen, but you've got people out there that are trying to do that. And you've got appropriators that want, they wanna be able to do their job. Yeah, and uh, they they don't like the fact that they're going to just give up and do a CR. It's there's a lot of <laughs> interesting dynamics here. Incredible so, dynamics. Yeah, incredible dynamics. And I mean, even a short term CR, you're going to have to get plenty of votes from the Democrats, right? Exactly. And if we do that, if Speaker Johnson takes that route with a short term CR, he's going to be right back where former Speaker McCarthy was when the group of eight or the gang of eight. Uh, went to vacate the position or vacate his seat. Uh, so it, 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 things seem to be pointing back in that direction, Tyne, and that's a big concern. And then longer term, some of the cuts that would be mandated under a year-long 
continuing resolution, it, th those are cuts that when you look at the defense spending, for example, that there's there, there are lawmakers on both sides of the aisle that don't want those cuts to happen to certain projects. Okay, Chip, real quick, we're running into yeah. some key deadlines here. January yeah. 19th, February 2nd. Does yeah. Peterson see a chance of us getting a, a, a agreement here before those deadlines? I don't think so. I don't think he sees that. And what that does is it continues to push back uh, taking up the farm bill and, and time. The big concern that I've got is that the farm bill, the further back you push it, the more clout that we are losing for the farm bill. And that means less pull for farm states in, in Congress in general. Farm bill's a big takeaway. Another big takeaway, Chip, how complex it is in Congress right now. Oh, this is unbelievable. I've, I've never seen so many different pieces of the puzzle that are trying to fit together to make things make sense. The, the dysfunction of what is happening and the upheaval that's happening in Congress, this is unprecedented. All right. Thanks, Chip. Remember, you can listen to Agritalk AM at 10 a.m. Central, Agritalk PM, 2 p.m. Central, and on demand on agritalk.com. There are podcasts as well. Chip, again, thank you. All right. Up next, it's a Wisconsin family's tractor collection. The Machinery Pete describes as a treat. You have to see it to believe it and leave it to Machinery Pete to uncover it all. That's next. And later, the polar plunge. Temperatures are brutal in the plains. We're talking record-breaking coal, livestock, and crops. Really, what's most at risk right now? That's coming up. Just leave it to Machinery Pete to find a building full of tractor treasures, unlocking some family favorites more than a century old. It's an impressive collection and one that Machinery Pete traveled to Monroe, Wisconsin to uncover. Hey folks, Machinery Pete here on the road in Monroe, Wisconsin. I tell you what, this is a special treat. We are at the uh, family collection at Carousel Farms, and I'm here with Randy Bader. And Randy, first of all, thank you for giving us the opportunity to get up close to your amazing collection of John Deere and, and other types of equipment. It is, it is kind of mind-blowing to stand here and look at your collection. And of course, we're standing by a piece of John Deere history. Can you tell us about this Waterloo boy? Uh, th this is a 1914 uh, Model R. Okay. And uh, they're fairly rare. Uh, there wasn't a lot of ours built. I, I guess it would be easy to find out, but it's a matter how many are left. But this is a Kenny Cass tractor out of Dunkerton, Iowa. And we were introduced to this tractor down at the uh, New Pavilion uh, the first year that they had it. As we look around your collection here, uh, Randy, and by the way, folks, if you, if you want more in-depth, we have a whole walkthrough machine repeat YouTube video with Randy and his brothers talking about the collection, but the Waterloo Boy is a centerpiece, but just amazing history all around here, Randy. Can you tell us a little bit how it all got started for you guys? Oh, probably started when we were boys, okay. uh, probably riding with our grandfather Bader on his John Deere tractors. Your, your late father, Ron, legend in the agricultural industry uh, with the agency side, uh, you know, helped make American agriculture what it was. Uh, must have been a lot of fun with dad over the years. Oh, it was tremendous. We, we had the most wonderful time with our father. And he loved machinery too. He had a passion for all agriculture. And, and he was good at anything he did. And uh, when he decided and asked us guys if we wanted to start collecting two-cylinder 
John Deere tractors, of course, we were delighted. Yeah. And uh, I think our first auction we all went together was uh, Kiwana, Illinois. Mm. And we found a couple old deeds that we brought back home. And that was the beginning. Yeah. Isn't it funny that the, the, the tractors that you acquire at the auctions, or even those auctions where you go and you get skunk, you don't get it. But you can look back on the days spent with your brothers or your dad or your wife or your friends at the sale. I mean, those are good days. Those were the best days of our lives. Yeah, we were all together looking at yeah. and judging tractors. With this collection, you, you're, you're connecting our past as we smash forward full speed into the future. And like you say, the modern equipment in the shed, you guys farm, you, you know, doing what you got to do. But, you know, honoring our past like this is a beautiful thing to do. So, Randy, thank you for what you guys have done, you and your brothers and your family. And thank you for showing us, uh, again, just a treat to be able to get up close to it. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Greg. What an impressive collection. Well, if you're complaining about how cold it is outside right now, if it's not negative 30 or even negative 40, I'm here to tell you it could be worse. We'll look at the record-breaking cold and the possible impact on ag next. The polar plunge is taking the U.S. by storm this week. Record-breaking cold with some areas seeing a nearly 80-degree temperature swing in just a matter of days, and the fallout could be losses for both crops and livestock. There's only one way to describe the cold taking hold of the U.S. right now. Boy, it's going to be nasty. If you are out in the northwestern plains, it is going to be unbearable. Drew Lerner, an ag meteorologist and founder of World Weather, says the cold weather is blanketing much of the U.S., but the western plains is in the bullseye. Uh, we are going to see temperatures drop to the lower negative 40s in Montana. Negative 30s and negative 20s will occur in the rest of Montana, the western parts of the Dakotas, and southward into a part of Wyoming and also western Nebraska. In those areas, Lerner thinks records will be broken. Not only in the northern plains, uh, there may be a couple of spots in the central plains, but mostly northern plains in Canada, uh, western Canada's prairies. Uh, we will probably see at least a couple of locations get down to minus 50 or minus 49, minus 50, somewhere in there. So, yes, there will be record uh, cold. Now, for the Midwest, probably not so much, uh, but it'll be cold enough. It won't matter. And with the negative 30 to negative 40 forecast in some areas, it's the vicious swing in the temperatures that are what's making this such a threat to livestock. From a livestock perspective, uh, some of these temperatures are just, as you put it, brutal. And uh, the animals in Montana, again, have not been adequately hardened against the, win the winter weather because it's been so warm. They've had 50 and even some 60 degree temperatures in the past couple of weeks. From 40 degrees above zero earlier this week to now forecast for temperatures to drop to negative 40 in places, he says it's dangerous for livestock. The situation is going to be stressful for the animals. Might have a little reduction in milk production for the dairy areas, and then we've got a little potential for some weight gains uh, in the beef cattle country uh, that might be an issue. And of course, uh, in the hogs area, uh, we probably will again have some stress. I don't think there's going to be as much of a potential for a big issue there. And with little to no snow cover in that part of the plains, the winter wheat crop is also at risk. I don't think there's going to be a widespread problem, but it's it, those temperatures are far enough below zero with what little snow is going to be on the ground that the potential is still there that there could be damage done to the crop. 
As much of the U.S. braces for the cold, Lerner thinks this Arctic air is fairly short-lived. The whole reason for this event is a stratospheric warming that took place in late December. When it turns warmer, it expands that layer in the atmosphere and it pushes, puts pressure on the troposphere and forces cold air that's aloft down to the surface and then it gets spread out from the Arctic. At the same time, El Nino is helping drive moisture up from the south. But for now, Lerner is worried the northern plains won't see much moisture this winter. We will continue to perpetuate storms periodically across the southern U.S. into maybe the lower part of the Midwest and the southeastern states. But as far as getting big storms to occur in the western Corn Belt or the northern plains or even uh, the central plains, it's going to be a little bit harder to come by. Negative 40, that's not even wind chill. That is brutal. There is no other way to describe it. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you for watching. Be sure to tune in next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a safe and warm weekend. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.